Welcome to TanakhStudy.com. My name is Jonathan Snowbell, and we are beginning the first of six sections on Parashat Shlach. Last week's parasha, Parashat Behalotecha, concluded in the wilderness of Paran. More significantly, last week's parasha dealt with completing the process of being prepared to travel to Eretz Yisrael and beginning to actually travel to Eretz Yisrael. However, the traveling hit sore spots with the sins of the Mit Onanim, the Mitavim, and the sin of Miriam and Aharon. This week's parasha begins by seemingly getting back on track towards Eretz Yisrael, the destination to which all of our preparations in Sefer Bamidbar are leading us. We will begin with Parashat Shlach. Vaydaber Adonai el Moshe Lemor. Shalach lecha anashim v'yaturu et Eretz Kena'an asher ani noten l'vnei Yisrael. Ish echad, ish echad lemate avotav tishlachu kol nasivahem. Vayishlach otam Moshe mimidbar paran alpi Adonai. Kulam anashim rashi v'nei Yisrael heima. Hashem spoke to Moshe, saying, Send out for yourself men so that they may seek out the land of Canaan, which I am going to give to the sons of Israel. You shall send a man from each of their father's tribes, everyone a leader among them. So Moshe sent them from the wilderness of Paran, at the command of Hashem, all of the men who were the heads of the sons of Israel. When we read this parasha, we all know that we are talking about the sin of the spies, or in Hebrew, Chet HaMeraglim. But now, let us pinpoint the word used to describe the mission at the outset of our parsha and actually used throughout our parasha. Ve-yaturu, or as we translate it into English, seek out. Even the translation I usually use made this mistake and translated the word Ve-yaturu, spy out. There is a word for spying in Hebrew, Liragel. It is used in the Torah, but not here. In the previous parasha, the Torah states, "Va'aron brit Hashem nosea lifnehem latur lahem menucha." The Aaron, God's Aaron, traveled in front of them to seek or to choose for them a resting place. The Aaron did not spy. So too, the mission is to seek out or choose Eretz Canaan, Eretz Israel. Why? For what purpose? How do you choose a predetermined geographical location? It is already chosen. As we continue our analysis, we will see. One final point on this matter, the parasha begins with a commandment from God, something to keep in mind as we progress. Who are these people who will be sent? Kol Nasivahem, a leader or prince from each tribe, someone well known. One could even suspect that we know these people. We already have princes at the beginning of Sefer Bimidbar. Is it safe to assume that they are the same people? We will continue to read. Verse, verse 4. Lemate Ephraim Hoshea bin Nun, Lemate Vinyamin Palti ben Rafu, Lemate Zivulun Gadiel ben Sodi, Lemate Yosef, Lemate Menashe, Gadi ben Susi, Lemate Dan Amiel ben Gemali, Lemate Asher Setur ben Michael, Lemate Naftali Nahbi ben Vofsi, Lemate Gad Geuel ben Machi, 
אלה שמות האנשים אשר שלח משה לטור את הארץ, ויקרא משה להושע בן נון יהושע. These then were their names, from the tribe of Reuven, Shemua the son of Zakur, from the tribe of Shimon, Shaphat the son of Hori, from the, tri- from the tribe of Yehuda, Kalev the son of Yefune, from the tribe of Issachar, Yigal the son of Yosef, from the tribe of Ephraim, Hoshea the son of Nun, from the tribe of Binyamin, Palti the son of Rafu, from the tribe of Zivulun, Gadiel the son of Sodi, from the tribe of Yosef, from the tribe of Menasheh, Gadi the son of Susi, From the tribe of Dan, Amiel, the son of Gimali. From the tribe of Asher, Situr, the son of Michael. From the tribe of Naphtali, Nahbi, the son of Ofsi. From the tribe of Gad, Geuel, the son of Machi. These are the names of the men who Moshe sent to seek out the land. But Moshe called Hoshea, the son of Nun, Yehoshua. We will briefly note, as part of our continuation of discussing Sefer Bemidbar, that we have 12 tribes here. The twelve tribes include two tribes from the son of Yosef. We have Menasheh and Ephraim. And that means that we have to exclude Levi. And Levi did not send spies to Eretz Yisrael. When we read the names, we read names that were apparently well known to B'nai Yisrael, as the Torah describes. But except for one, they're all new names to us. Yoshua Binun we have met several times. Most recently in last week's parasha is Moshe's servant from his youth, defending Moshe's status as a prophet. Why do we need new leaders if we just appointed leaders from each tribe at the beginning of Sefer Bemidbar? The Sforno addresses this point, that this is a physical mission that demands physical abilities that might have not have been common among the classic leadership. Yoshua stands out in the verses that we read, because we find out that Moshe changed his name. What the reason for this is discussed in the commentaries. Likewise, whether this happened at this juncture in time or not, but just became relevant at this juncture in time, as previously mentioned, we have met Yehoshua several times, and in each incident he was called Yehoshua and not Hoshea. In any case, however we understand what is going on here, the Torah puts a spotlight on Yehoshua even before the mission takes place. And the spotlight is in terms of his relationship with Moshe. Moshe gave him this name. He is Moshe's servant. This is something that we have to keep in mind as we continue reading this section. Now we arrive at the detailed description of the purpose of this mission. Verse 17. וריתם את הארץ מהי, ואת העם היושב עליה, החזק הוא הרפה, המעט הוא עם רב. ומה הארץ אשר הוא יושב בה, הטובה היא עם רעה. ומה הערים אשר הוא יושב בהן, הבמחנים עם במבצרים. ומה הארץ, השמנה היא עם רזה, היש בעץ עם עין. והתחזקתם ולקחתם מפרי הארץ, והימים ימי ביקורי ענבים. And Moshe sent them to seek out the land of Canaan, and he said to them, Go up there into the Negev, then go up into the hill country. See what the land is like, and whether the people who live in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many. How is the land in which they live? Is it good or bad? And how are the cities in which they live? Are they like open camps or with fortifications? How is the land? Is it fat or lean? 
Are there trees in it or not? Make an effort then to get some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the time of the first ripe grapes. What is this list that Moshe commands them? What is its purpose? There seems to be conflicting indications as to whether this is a reconnaissance mission to gather information, perhaps on how best to capture the country, or a mission to understand and appreciate the value of the country to which they are going. Let's go line by line. See the land, what is it? What is it, in what regard? Seems too open-ended to determine. The people who live in it, strong or weak, few or many. This leans to a reconnaissance mission, to know who the enemy is. The land, good or bad, how is this relevant to reconnaissance? Doesn't seem to be. Walled cities or not, or fortifications or encampments, once again, very relevant to reconnaissance. The land, fat or thin, with trees or without, bring a sample. Once again, not relevant to reconnaissance. So is this a reconnaissance mission or not? The Ramban, in great length, describes that in fact there are two factors. The main guiding factor is a reconnaissance mission. This is a common tactic used again by Moshe at the end of Sefer Bemidbar, when he captures the city of Yazer, and later by Yoshua when he conquers Yericho. But there are elements that address the quality of the land that do not have to do with reconnaissance, but with endearing the land to the people. Rashi, in contrast, takes some of the simplest elements of reconnaissance and flips it to mean something about the quality of the land. The people who live in it, strong or weak, few or many, this we assumed was a question of reconnaissance. However, Rashi comments based on the Midrash Tanchuma, which flips the question from focusing on the potential enemy to the actual quality of the land. It is a land that grows strong people or weak people. Is it a land that supports population growth or limits it? The apparent disagreement between Rashi and Ramban forces us to look into the parallel version of this story at the beginning of Sefer Dvarim in chapter 1. We are going to do this throughout learning Parshat Shlach, or at least the Sin of the Spies. We're going to choose smaller sections as we go along. Right now we're going to look at Dvarim chapter 1, verse 22 through 25. Vatikrivun Elai Kulechem, Vatomeru, Nishlecha Anashim Lefanenu, Viyah Perulanu et Aret, Viyashivu Otanu Davar, et Aderech Asher Naleba, Viet Harim Asher Navo Alehen, Vaita Verinai Hadavar, Vaikah Mikem Shneem Asar Anashim, Ishahad Lashavit, Vaifnu Vayalu Hahara, Vayavo at Nahalishko, Vayragiluota, Vaikhu Viadami Periha Aret, Vayoridu Elenu, Vayashivu Otanu Davar, Vayomeru, then you, all of you approached me and said, Let us send men before us, that they may search out the land for us, and bring back to us word of the way by which we should go up, and the cities which we shall enter. The thing pleased me, and I took twelve of your men, one man for each tribe. They turned and went up to the hill country, and came to the valley of Eshkol, and spied it out. Then they took some of the fruit of their, of, in their hands, and brought it down to us. And they brought us back a report and said, It is a good land which Hashem our God is about to give us. In this brief section, let us point to three discrepancies between the two stories and one similarity. The question of who initiates this mission. In Sefer Bemidbar and Parshat Shlach, it is God. God starts by Daber Hashem Moshe Lemor, a classic beginning of a commandment by God. 
Sefer Dvarim, the initiator, was the nation with Moshe's agreement. The verb that is used, as we pointed out in our parasha, v'yaturu, to seek out, to choose, as opposed to the verbs in Sefer Dvarim, v'yachperu, v'yiragelu, indicating spying. And finally, as we said, this doesn't seem to be a, in Parshat Shlach, we don't seem to be having a map or an, uh, an exercise how to capture the land. And Sefer Dvarim is clearly talking about military tactics, how to capture the land. Exactly, precisely, which way, which cities. But in both, some sort of confusion exists. As we demonstrated in Bemidbar, we saw certain elements that re- related to reconnaissance and certain elements that related to how good the land was. Here too, while the plan was to give some sort of military plan, when the spies come back, they just answer, The land is good. How does that answer the question of where we should go and where we should attack? We've highlighted three discrepancies thus far between the two stories, but as we continue to read, we will find more. How do we deal with these discrepancies and other similar discrepancies in the Torah itself? Biblical criticism takes a simple, unsophisticated, and root without basis. If two stories do not seem to fit with each other, if there are discrepancies, then we can conclusively conclude that they were written by two different and differing authors that were combined into the Torah. The fact that the Torah always appears united and un- unfragmented historically does not matter to them. This approach does not suit us neither religiously, theologically, as we believe in the unity of the Torah from God, nor intellectually, as it offers a simplistic answer that would not be accepted in analyzing literature in general. The classic commentators often take an approach that claim that one must take the pieces from the two stories and join them together to make one unified story. This approach is essentially adopted by the Ramban. When we, read, when we read through the Ramban, he is constantly looking at our parasha and Varim and trying to come up with a cohesive story. The Ramban's view of the verses in our parasha are colored by what he also knows from Sefer Dvarim. Since Sefer Dvarim is clearly a reconnaissance mission, he reads Parsha Shlach in this light. A third approach is not to read both sections together, but rather to read them separately and view them independently, not because they are written by different authors, but because they are highlighting different perspectives. Both are true. This perspective is essentially being adopted by Rashi in our case. By denying the reconnaissance nature of Moshe's question regarding the strength of the people living in Eretz Yisrael, he is adopting an approach loyal just to the text in our parasha. That is, that our parasha is only asking about the quality of the land. We began our discussion by noting the word viyaturu and pointed out that in Dvarim other words are used, vayachperu, viraglu. The two words in Dvarim denote a military reconnaissance mission, but that is not the word the Torah chooses here, to seek and choose Eretz Yisrael. The leaders of the nation, the princes, not necessarily the most effective military spies, who would also not necessarily be so well known, those people will go to Eretz Yisrael and choose it out for the nation. The nation will not be going into this relationship with Eretz Yisrael blindly on God's words alone, but their representatives will see it first, appraise its good, and report back to the nation.
This is God's purpose in sending the people to Eretz Yisrael. He initiates the mission. Additionally, in parallel, the nation wants a reconnaissance mission to determine the best way to conquer the land. Moshe agrees. This is described in Sefer Dvarim. The two missions overlap and are combined into one. It must be noted that Rashi is not consistently viewing things too, se too separately. In fact, in the outset of our parasha, Rashi does deal with the discrepancies between the, par the, two, par the two stories, and specifically the one of who initiates. Rashi combines the two stories together into one story. He claims that B'nai Israel approached Moshe. They shouldn't have. They should have trusted in God. Moshe agreed. After Moshe agreed, God then commanded Moshe and said, Shlach lecha, you can send for you. I am not actually commanding you to do this, but if you want to, you can. So Rashi at times uh, has adopted different approaches in this matter, in this in this, in this specific one that we just mentioned, he actually reads the two stories together. Returning briefly now to verse 20, the leaders are commanded to be strong and take from the fruit of the land. Apparently, the strength needed for the fear that they will become more conspicuous as a result of carrying the fruit. The Chizkuni comments, because of the fact that it was the time of the first ripe fruits, there would have been more guards guarding the vineyards. This has the potential to open a discussion on morality versus God's command. How could they, on God's command, steal from other people's vineyards? But we will leave that question to the spoils B'nai Israel took from Egypt in Sefer Shemot. Perhaps they were commanded to take from wild vineyards that were not owned. The days are the days of the first fruit of the grapes. In our modern reality where grapes can be bought almost the entire year due to importing or modern-day farming innovations of growing in hothouses and various watering techniques that were not possible in the past, we can forget what time of the year do the first fruit of the grapes come. This puts us in the middle of the summer, which has the potential to coincide with the sages' claim the report of the leaders to Moshe at the end of their mission took place on Tisha B'Av. More details about the dating of the story will soon be discussed. Let's now, for now, continue in verse 21. So they went up and seeked out the land from the wilderness of Tzin as far as Rehov at Levo Hamat. When they had gone up into the Negev, they came to Hebron, where Ahiman, Sheshai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, or of the giant, were. Now, Hebron was built seven years before Tzoran in Egypt. The geographical magnitude of verse 21 is the entire length of Eretz Yisrael from, what, from the south, from what we call the Negev in the south, to well into the modern state of Lebanon in the north, and according to some, even as far as Turkey, the whole length of the Mediterranean Sea. These would be covering the expanded maximal borders as promised to Avraham in the covenant of the pieces Brit ben Habtarim. This would explain the 40-day trip as well, mentioned in verse 25. 
This contrasts with verse 22, which focuses on a very limited geographical location from the Negev to Hebron. Hebron is the southern tip of the more densely inhabited end of the country. If they traveled so far and so wide, why describe in detail this one location? We have to look at the significance of this place as to either previous knowledge we have about it, from what we have already learned in the Torah, or as a potential for foreshadowing future events. The latter approach, foreshadowing, is a good bet. The place where the leaders, spies, meet the giants will be of significant relevance in their first report. Before there's even a fight amongst the different spies, they are going to describe the land and having noticed the children of Anak, or the children of the giant. In their secondary report, when they're already in the thick of fighting with Kalev, again they're going to mention the giant. And in Sefer Dvarim as well, the issue of the giants come up as well. Yes, they traveled the entire country, but what left an impression and formed the ultimate opinion of the majority report were the children of Anak, or the children of the giants in Hebron. However, Rashi adopts a combined approach, first noting a grammatical point, vayalu in plural, and then vayavo in singular, referring to Kalev, who will be singled out shortly, foreshadowing, who alone went to Hebron, the city we already know as the city where our forefathers dwelled and were buried, thus using previous knowledge of Hebron. Why? In order to beseech at their graves that he should not be caught up in the majority opinion. The common denominator is that even as the mission was in motion, problems were brewing, and that's therefore the need for pointing out what happened in Hebron, though it is only one geographical location to which they arrived. Finally, let's read verses 22 through 24. Pardon me, verses 23 through 24. Then they came to the valley of Eshkol, and from there cut down a branch with a single cluster of grapes, and they carried it on a pole between two men with some of the pomegranates and the figs. That place was called the valley of Eshkol because of the cluster which the sons of Israel cut down from there. And they returned from spying out the land at the end of forty days. The vision of the two leaders holding an entire bunch, or Eshkol of grapes, on one stick, printed on bottles of wine and grape juice, give us an impression of an enormous bunch of grapes of the nature which we have not seen in our lifetime. Rashi, Rashi points out the first word, zimora, the actual vine upon which the bunch was carried. In other words, it, was, it is possible that what was carried by two was not an enormous monster-like bunch of grapes, but a sample of an actual vine that had a bunch of grapes or bunches of grapes that could have very well been large and needed to be carried by two people. The mission took 40 days. We previously mentioned the, the, the grapes being taken during the season in which they be, become ripe, the summer. 
and the sages claim that the report took place on Tisha B'Av. On the other side of the chronology, B'nai Israel started their travel towards Eretz Israel on the 20th day of the second month, of I- the second month being Iyar, as we learned in chapter 10, verse 11. The travels did not go smoothly with the Mitonanim and its aftermath, and the greedy and the meat incident in Kivrot HaTa'ava. If we take all the details there at face value, that adds another 30 days, for they were supposed to eat meat for 30 days, as God said to Moshe. From there, they were they traveled to the wilderness of Paran, from where the current mission we are discussing we are discussing took place. 30 days in sum, from the 20th of the Aviar, will bring us to the end of the third month, Sivan, which adding 40 days of the mission, it is relevant to talk about the 9th of Av as the day the report came in. This being said, the Torah does not provide this math or these dates. It is plausible, but not necessary. God's word to feed them meat for 30 days might have not transpired after the death of the greedy ones. And even if 30 days of meat did transpire, what forces us to say that it took place in one geographical location and they were not traveling? Perhaps it began in one place and continued as they traveled to new locations. In which case, adding 30 days to the end of the second month is not justified. What does seem to be happening? As we mentioned in the introduction to Sefer Bemidbar, it is the disappearance of dates. Dates give structure, order, and direction. The Torah tells us dates until the nation begins its travels to Eretz Yisrael. From that point on, sins start to appear, dates disappear, and structure, order, and direction are lost.